Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? This is Lindsay Lerner, and you're listening to The Cost of the Status Quo. More people than ever are questioning why they do what they do and forging their own path. And on this show, I sit down with these entrepreneurs, trailblazers, creatives, and overall awesome beings to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the overall tips and tricks they're using so that the rest of us can do the same. This is The Cost of the Status Quo. Elevate your sound game with Filbert, the perfect upgrade for your recording or office space. Our producer, Andrew, has been pushing for a better recording environment. Say goodbye to basic egg crates and hello to stylish felt tiles that not only reduce 35% of ambient noise, but also show off your unique design sense. And the best part, these tiles are made from recycled bottles, making your recording space both stylish and eco-friendly. Get 10% off at feltright.com with code CSQ10. That's CSQ10. Let's give Andrew and you, our listeners, the top-notch sound that you deserve while making a positive impact on the planet. Share your creative Feltright designs with us and join the sustainable sound revolution. Hey there, welcome to The Cost of the Status Quo, where today we are exploring the challenges that communities and innovators working to create positive change face. In this episode, we sit down with Matt MacArthur, the founder and executive director of The Record Co. TRC is a nonprofit music incubator based in Boston. TRC's mission is to provide accessible and affordable resources to local music makers, breaking down the barriers between artists and their creative visions. With limited accessible rehearsal space, recording, and performance spaces in Boston, TRC's low-cost recording studio workspace has become a crucial resource for community artists, hosting over 1,300 recording sessions every year. And now, with a major expansion of TRC's space and program offerings, the organization is poised to become an even bigger community hub for musicians and producers across the greater Boston area. Join us as we discuss how TRC is addressing chronic shortages in music resources in Boston and the importance of creating accessible spaces for local artists to thrive. As always, listeners, thank you so much for being here and for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you are learning, please share with your friends. Thank you so much. You say you don't know. Welcome back. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. What's happening, Lindsay? I'd love to hear a little bit about where you grew up and what set you on this music path. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. We had a little bit of land. We had horses and chickens and cows and a windmill and the whole thing. Tucson's a beautiful place. Grew up there with my twin sister, Kate, and my mom. It was mostly the three of us together uh, most of the time. Got super interested in music as a teenager. I'm a piano player, vocalist. I was I played the piano from a young age, and then realized at like twelve or thirteen that you didn't have to read transcriptions; you could just like jam and stuff. And so I started writing writing songs, mostly like piano, poppy, piano driven stuff. Left Tucson to come to music school out here in Boston, and I've been here since 2007. Could you walk me through and tell me a little bit about the early days of the Record Co. Post the Chickens and Music School? In the early, early days, it was a pretty simple concept. And a lot of the spirit of that original concept is still alive and present here today. I'm actually in one of our, uh, a little twirl, I'm in one of our production suites right now. The idea was, let's build a recording studio that doesn't belong to anybody. Because the fact that people own 
and gatekeep stuff is uh, a barrier to accessibility, barrier to um, equity and fairness and justice and all those things. But all those, even those words I just spouted off are, um, you know, all things that we've come to later. Initially, it was just like, let's build a recording studio that anybody can use. And, you know, as a, as a 19 year old at the time, I didn't know anywhere near as much as I know now about concepts of racial and gender group identities and other group identities and equity and the way to create accessibility and what, you know, and radical hospitality and welcomingness, et cetera. And were these all issues that you and like your, your friends, your fellow students were all struggling with? Yeah. I mean, I, and again, this is something that like, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about it as though I were the 19 year old again. I can't unknow what I know now. So I talk about it as though I knew then what I know now, and that's not true. You know, again, like the spirit of it was there. Let's make a thing that nobody owns so that anyone that wants to use it can use it and that they can use it however they want to. We don't tell them how to use it. It's just a resource that they that they can use. Today, you know, we talk about that concept in a much more, uh, I guess, sophisticated is the word or just clearer, like a much, much clearer way. It's a, it's a community center, but instead of a pool, we have a bunch of recording studios. It's a public park, but it's a rehearsal space instead of a basketball court. And so if you're looking to find your people and you make music, like this is the kind of place where, you know, you just show up and you run into somebody. Did you have a first job in the music industry? My first job in the music industry was working at the Apple store. Actually, I lied. My first job in the music industry <laughs> was pouring water at a restaurant in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Everyone should be a server at least once. Oh my gosh. Of course. It's... <laughs> I mean, this is a, I'm not, I'm not reaching here when I say like, this is a service business that we're in. And it's something that I was fortunate enough to have uh, a really experienced mentor early on who really hammered that into me. She said over and over again, like, you don't realize it, but you're not an artist. You're here to serve, to use the craft. What she used to say, our craft is what we have when art fails us, which is most of the time. So sometimes there will be a moment of artistic expression, but even when that happens to you as a recording engineer or a producer or a songwriter or whatever sort of supporting role you might be playing, even when that happens, you're not there to take credit for it. You're there to serve and support the artistry of the artist that you're working with. And that's a tough thing, especially for young people who you know probably have some creative practice you know, beyond just the technical aspects of recording or producing have some sort of creative practice of their own. They write songs, they play an instrument, and it's hard to not put yourself in the sort of constantly be going, okay, well, I had this great idea and the song came out better because of it. And it's like, that's not, that's not why we're here. We're here to- <laughs> Right. You're the vehicle, accept the idea, download it. And that's a, that's actually a huge part of my, my personal journey. And one of the reasons why I'm so at home in this particular job, um, leading this organization is that I turns out I'm far better at facilitating the art of other people than I am at making art. And I know, you know, enough to be dangerous. I speak the language and I, I understand what you're saying, but like, no, I don't, I'm not the kind of person that has that idea, that spark of an idea that turns into a song that teaches people something about themselves that they didn't know. It's just like, it's not, but I, but you know, I can make a mean pot of coffee and make sure that the air conditioning is on and make sure that like, this place is comfortable and that the lighting is cool. And that when you walk in here, you feel both undistracted by the environment, but also like comfortable and at home and in a way that, that you're at ease in a way that allows those kinds of ideas to come out of you. But like 
Record Co. and certainly not me are not the, we don't create those. I mean, that's all you. We're just, you know, we're, we're a vessel, as you said. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. So what was that process like for you? I mean, you went, you played piano, you are a vocal artist, you go to school for music. Was there any friction in that process of going basically, you know, <laughs> on the stage to backstage? I mean, I would say the biggest friction was just, you know, getting the floor wiped with me and my bands at, you know, when the next act would come on, you know, and you're sort of like, you're the friction of passing someone who's way better at this on your way off the stage. You know what I mean? You know, you're kind of like sauntering off like, okay, I guess we did it. And they're sort of bounding on to just like show the crowd how fucking awesome they are. No, you, but that, that was a huge part of my, of that realization too. Like I said, I had really good mentors who were, you know, who were very honest with me, even when it hurt. <laughs> and, and also like, you just, you see it, you know, you come off stage or you go to a, someone else's show and you see that je ne sais quoi, that like a band on stage that really is just built to do that. You know, you see them doing it. Sometimes it's, you know, two members of the four members. You're just like, I don't know about those other two, but, like, it's two. but anyway, whether it's the whole band or not, you can see that where there's that one song you hear and you're like, wow, okay, whoever put that song together really has something in their gut that, you know, in their, um, but that was a big part. That realization was part of it. And, you know, I did try and do both for a while. And at some point, these, these things kind of, um, you know, water seeks its own level. At some point, it's like, okay, I'm going to keep doing the thing that is producing more impact, you know, where there, where there are results, where I can see and feel the impact of the work and where I can tell that it's more appreciated. How do you think your education and training in music was able to really shape your approach to now leading the record co? So there's definitely the the thing we already talked about about speaking the language. So it's always it's always helpful like to have some insight about I'm going to call them customers. Sometimes we call them community members. Sometimes we call them users. Like no one wants to be called a user or a customer to their face. The people we serve. The people we're, that we exist for, that without whom none of this means anything, music makers. Speaking that language, having enough understanding of what those music makers are going through that I can, you know, that I'm able to empathize and also that I'm able to, you know, just be, be credible and that all of us that work here are, you know, again, know enough to be dangerous. It's helpful when someone asks for, you know, this or that adapter or that microphone, or do you have a recommendation about this that like, Here's my here's my Apple Store training coming in. Either you know the answer or you say, let's find out. And then you go find someone who knows and you still the conduit by which that person gets an answer to their question. So ta-da, you did it. We're a team. What a gift. Um, <laughs> the, that's a Maria Bamford. There's a Maria Bamford does like nine minutes on Prairie Home Companion. I'm telling you, it's like the funniest nine minutes. It kills me. I'll send you a link after this. It's so good. Excellent. So I could good. use a laugh. <laughs> just like sometimes <laughs> speaking of like art, sometimes you just see something and you're like, that person is just on a completely different planet that I'm on. They're looking like they look at this cup and I'm like, wow, this cup does a great job of holding this coffee. And she's like, that used to be a tree, <laughs> you know, or that's not even that. I think she, she probably sees something even weirder. Um, she's like, that would be a great hat for a squirrel. 
Um, but like the way that she sees her world is so different. And I think that's one of the most amazing things about artists is that they pick up the same object or see the same situation happening that we all see. And they just like see something completely different than what we're looking at. Yes. A hundred percent. Is there a, is there a particular, I guess, along that note, is there a particular moment or memorable project or even experience from whether it's your early years in the industry or even recently that really sticks out to you in that way? When you're in these kinds of environments and when you're in, especially when you're in a city that you know has a lot of people coming and going from it, wacky things happen. Also, sometimes like, like I walked in here, like I think the third week that this new facility was open and like, you know, some I'm walking past this person in the common area and I'm like, that person looks really familiar. And they pulled their mask down for a second. I was like, oh, it's John Ham. What the fuck are you doing here? You know, it's like, oh, oh, hi. Yeah. And, and, you know, or like you're at the, you're at the coffee pot and, you know, striking up a conversation and they're like, yeah, I'm a music supervisor for Disney. We're doing some new musical thing for Christmas. We're looking for a studio. So we just came by for a tour. And like, I don't think that project ended up happening here, but the point is just that like, one of the things that's so magical about these environments is like, you're a 12 year old who's here for a music lesson. You're going to get a cup of hot water or whatever. And you bump into somebody who's like one, how many of those people, like I, I actually, I asked uh, the person that was the music supervisor. I was like, okay, but like in all seriousness, how many of you are there in the country who are like, how many music supervisors at that level do we actually need? They presented as she, she was like, yeah, there's like, I don't know, 15 of us, 13, 14 of us in the country you know, across all the different studios. Like they don't, you don't need that many because, you know, you're only specking music for a few movies at a time and then you move on to the next batch. And and I'm just like, holy fucking shit. Like you're, you're here. You're like, you're super famous in a not famous sort of way. Like you're, I'm going to hear whether it's just in passing in a movie trailer or something like I'm going to hear all kinds of stuff that you made decisions about over the next, for the rest of my life, probably. I don't know in order for this environment to be legible to them, it has to be of a really, really high quality and a way, a way higher quality than what someone who's just taking their first music lesson or making their first recording necessarily needs or even wants. And so that's another kind of equalizing thing. It turns out when you give people really nice shit, it attracts, when the thing is really nice, it attracts a wider range, a greater diversity in every sense diversity of experience, diversity of technical ability, diversity of professional strata, diversity of racial and gender group identities, of sexual orientations, all that. It appeals to a wider range of people because almost everyone likes nice shit. Totally. Totally. Nice shit and free shit. Yeah. Affordable. When when that ratio is right, (laughs) when it's both affordable and really high quality, Mm -hmm. it is just by its very definition, more appealing and more accessible to more people. Um, And so that's been an interesting thing to grapple with because so many of our early spaces were super duper homemade. Totally. I remember the original space that was homegrown, my friend. I mean, that was, that was incredible. When you watch the Maria Bamford bit laugh, when she says he has a certain quality, Um, the original (laughs) space had a certain quality. It totally did. It totally did. And I think the communal aspect that you're speaking to, that's what that's, I mean, that's what I think your art, art form is, you know, it might have might not have been playing piano or singing, but the art of community is truly something that you've nailed time and time again, and it just continues to exponentially get better and better. And I think creating those serendipitous moments, like that's the magic. And that's truly like, that's the motivator. And it's, it's just amazing to see it all play out. 
I appreciate you saying that. That means that means a lot to all of us here. And I, I think we're that's been the wind beneath our wings for sure. The reason why we keep showing up is because you do, you see it, you see it happen, you see the interaction at the coffee pot. It's interesting how much of that, and I'll get like, I'll get super cheesy here and and liken it to the whole like the notes you don't play kind of thing where it's like, it's not just the notes you play, but it's like the empty space in between the notes. There's a lot of stuff we don't do on purpose in order to leave you the space that you need, like literally and figuratively to like do that for yourself. And we've refined that over a really long period of time, right? It's coffee, water, tea. Okay. None of those go to your room. Bye. There's nobody in the room with you, right? We let you in, you go in, you do your own thing. We're out here to, you know, back to the community pool or a metaphor or analogy. I don't know the difference because I went to music school. Don't know how to spell anything. I don't know how to talk, but I can. <laughs> but, you know, there's some lifeguards running around. We're not going to teach you how to swim. You know, it's not a it's not a swim meet. We're not judging you. But there right. are some lifeguards running around. If you find yourself in the deep end and you need someone to drag you out, <laughs> we'll come show you what button you need to press so that you can hear what you're trying to hear in the headphones. Like, no problem. <laughs> Oh, totally. We're totally. We can probably spot, we can look through the window and actually the COVID era, because we opened in the middle of COVID, got us real good at that. We can just look through the window and be like, okay, it's the button on the right at three o'clock. Okay. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Did you have any, I know you mentioned one earlier, one of your mentors, but who were some of your early mentors and or role models in the industry? So I, I had a mentor, uh, a good friend and mentor named Susan Rogers, who was a professor of mine at Berkeley. She was a very, very illustrious recording engineer and producer, had done a bunch of work with Prince and with the Bare Naked Ladies and a bunch of other very well-known artists. The last record she produced actually was Stunt by the Bare Naked Ladies. And then she left her career in the music industry and became a neurocognitive neuroscientist and then ended up teaching both record production and neuroscience at Berkeley. Now she's written a book and retired from Berkeley and I'm not retired isn't the right word, but moved on. I'm sure she's not done working. Um, and she and I actually worked on Record Co. together for the first couple of years. So my whole value system about like what a recording studio is and what it should be and, and how it should feel when you're in one and the fact, you know, again, the service orientation, all of that came from her, you know, as someone who had been in just about every storied recording studio on the planet. In terms of the music industry as a whole, just as a big question, which I'm sure you have a lot of opinions about, as do I, <laughs> in terms of the, the broader industry, what are some of the changes, for better or worse, over the last, let's say, 20 years? So 20 years, I would have been 13. Yeah, so I probably was using like LimeWire and things I shouldn't have been at that time, like right in the center of it. And, you know, like using Sony Acid on my Dell PC to like make crappy demo recordings of songs that I thought were great. This is the best song I've ever written. Yeah, it's like the third song you've ever written. Um, <laughs> well, it's still the best, man. Uh, <laughs> see, that's not what I sounded like. It was more like, um, this song is the best and you all need to listen to it like right now. Like, get out. Get it. Get out your headphones. Okay, everybody. I got a splitter. Let's go. It sounds better in headphones because I don't know how to mix stuff. Right. 
I'm only 13. Um, <laughs> I love that. Uh, so I think, I mean, there's no way to talk about the sort of traditional label model without talking about all the ways that that just totally screwed over artists over and over and over again. You know, like capitalism sucks. It was never pure of intention. You know, that original system was always exploitative in some in some way. And there, I think there are plenty of examples, as there are in modern, you know, late-stage capitalism that we're in now, where people can, it is possible to achieve that nexus of like, something that is of a good quality that people actually want at a price that people can actually afford and everybody makes money. And like in moderation, when everyone involved sort of puts their hands together and says, okay, we're all going to take like 20% less than we could get. And as a result, the whole thing is going to be better for everybody. Yeah, it can work. And I think there's plenty of examples. We can probably find plenty of examples in the kind of traditional version of the music industry where, yeah, everyone put their hands together and said, okay, like we're in this together. Let's do this the right way. Uh, you know, and then for every like two of those, there's probably 10 where it's just like, no, someone's going to fuck someone else over and, you know, and that cycle's going to repeat itself. And, and, you know, did it actually, I think the question is about the traditional system. The question is to what extent did it provide the space and time and resource for people to develop their artistry in a way that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise, or that they're not able to now. So when I think about something like signing someone to a five album deal or a seven album deal or whatever those traditional kind of deals were, on the one hand, that was a ball and chain that was going to hold you down if by record three or four, the people you were working with weren't interested in you anymore. You were going to get shelved. You were going to be stuck in that deal. That was going to be terrible for you. On the other hand, did it create the opportunity for you to make three or four albums that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to make and, and develop yourself as an artist in the process and learn something about like, Yeah. And, you know, and now that whole thing is on you entirely. It's on you to fund it. It's on you to distribute it. It's on you as an individual to learn how to be a jack of all trades and, you know, maybe master of none. And and to what extent is that time you're spending on all those things that are not writing the song or getting the guitar part right, right, whatever that means. To what extent is that actually keeping you from, you know, producing the best art that you can make? And so I think... I think that's what's lost is some time and space and opportunity to iterate that you don't have in a system that doesn't make a speculative upfront investment in you. Now, on the other hand, you've gained just about every other element of control. So I think it's really easy. You know, the grass is always greener. It's really easy to be like, oh, why can't I just get a record deal? And it's like, you know... The thing about a record deal is that it it presumes to a traditional record deal is that it like presumes to take you from wherever you are to some other place over a particular period of time. And this is not a one size fits all thing. And so many careers were lost or never really never happened because they were being sort of type fit or retrofit into some system that maybe didn't necessarily or some progression that didn't necessarily work for their artistry or their audience type or where they were as a creative. And so I have this conversation with young people all the time where they're just like, you know, I just want to have like a viral video and like, you know, have it all work out. And it's like, that's convenient. That's a convenient thing to say and think, or I just want to get a record deal. You know, I just want to get signed or whatever, because I guess that's still kind of possible, sort of, maybe. And the thing I always say is something that Susan used to say all the time is that there's a direct relationship between the time that your career takes to 
get to that elevated point that you want to be at and what the tail of that career looks like. And if a short rise is typically a short fall. So if you're willing to spend the next 10 years, you're like, yeah, okay, you're the flavor of the month. And then nobody can remember anything you've ever created. But if you if you're willing to take the 10 years to just kind of like, and it's sorry, it's not going to be linear, right? It's going to be kind of like, but if you're willing to take that, let's do circles. If you're willing to take that time to sort of like eventually get there, then the tail of that is going to be much longer. You built like a wider base to support the thing you're doing. It's not just sort of like on the sticks of the marketing efforts of your label. What is the thing that keeps you motivated? And I've seen from the beginning how much you've expanded and now this beautiful new facility. And it's it's mind-blowing to me and it's phenomenal and it's impressive and it's motivating to me as someone who's watching. But how do you, as the person who's growing it and doing the thing, how do you stay motivated? How do you stay inspired? And I mean, as, as a nonprofit as well, you're fundraising, you're growing, like you have to keep track of metrics, you're building a team. Like what has that process been like for you? Yeah. Um, my stock answer to this question is like, this job is more challenging and interesting today than it's ever been. And I say that most days. I'm like, wow, this is okay. There's a new one. I've never heard that one before. Happy Tuesday. <laughs> you know, what, what happened yesterday? A uh, shut off notice from the power company. It was like, uh, I've been approving, I've been approving an energy bill every month for the last you know, I've, I've been hitting approve on that. I, why is that not been getting paid? I don't know. And so sometimes it's like totally, totally benign like that. And you realize like, okay, there's some breakdown in some system that you thought was working forever that like apparently hasn't been working for the last five months or else we wouldn't be at this point. I think that there's a, there is a complexity and, you know, people in the end are the number one complexity, right? So the more customers, the more staff persons, the more contractors, the more consultants, the more bankers, the more funders, the more donors, the more board members, like the, the more humans there are, I mean, we fuck everything up, right? As soon as we get involved, the robots are fine. They would be fine without us. But since this whole thing, the whole fucking thing is about people and human beings getting together and being the imperfect, messy fucking people that we are to make cool stuff, it's just messy and it gets increasingly messy. And everybody's got a lot of feelings. Let me tell you right now, like people are. You you know this, like there's all these, I think, and it's not just COVID, right? But like all these unintended or sort of unforeseen or even difficult to attribute to COVID side effects, social side effects, psychological side effects that we're seeing now where people are just having a hard fucking time. And, and we're also, we're not in a social climate or a professional climate where, you know, hey, just do your job. It's like... <laughs> That's like, wasn't that what Bill Belichick says to the uh, Patriots players? Do your job. It's like a bunch of sweatshirts that say that on it. We're not, you know, maybe when you're paid that highly and, and your job, I'm not saying that it's easy to be a professional football player, but I am saying it's very focused. And this is, you know, we just talked about it. Like this is a, a, a situation where you got to be all things to all people. You don't have a photographer following you around. You're your own photographer. You don't have a social media person following you around. You got to do that yourself. And so you add like the mental and, sort of the workload and the mental psychological load of all of that on top of just like existing right now. What advice would you give to an aspiring person in music, whether they're a musician, they're a producer, whatever role they are, are seeking to fill post 
whatever COVID world that we're in, where everyone is deeply struggling and they need community and they need support, especially in the arts, especially in music. What does that look like? What does success look like to you and TRC? And what does that look like played out in a bigger vision? I mean, I think it makes me think about the way we talk about Boston as a kind of as a music scene and how supportive or unsupportive it is and what the what's the impact of a music maker here feeling like this place actually supported them or did something for them. Um, and I think we can, we can take that down to the individual level too, but just to finish the thought about Boston, like the goal, you know, can't be, or shouldn't be that like, Oh, we, you know, we retain all these musicians here. They all stay and it becomes this big happy family and like no one ever leaves. And you know, that's a cult um, is what that is. We're not doing that. Um <laughs> Not this time. Maybe the next organization that we start will be a cult, but this one isn't. <laughs> so it's more like, like, what's the, you know, one one specific outcome is like, does somebody at some point get up at some award show or some dinner or something and say in front of a room full of influential people say, you know, when I was getting my start in Boston, you know, it it that place really supported me and it felt like there was a community there. And like, I just... You know, don't don't overlook that place or don't overlook these people or these organizations in that place. And maybe that's what success looks like. It's just that somebody doesn't erase this place from their history, you know, where it's like, well, we changed the name of our band and moved to Brooklyn and now we're from Brooklyn. And it's like, we listened to your shitty music for five or six years. We came to your shows and then you just fucking forgot us and like went and got famous as the new band that, you know, suddenly magically appeared in Brooklyn out of nowhere. And it's like, it wasn't out of nowhere. We tolerated that shit for a while. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. So I think there's that. At the individual level, I think what it looks like is elimination of scarcity mentality you know, where, where we get to a place of an attitude of abundance, where I don't look at the gig that we both wanted to get that you got as like you wronging me or like taking food out of my mouth. But, you know, I look at it instead as something that a success that I can celebrate for you and an understanding that, you know, if you and I have a a close working relationship or a, you know, a healthy working relationship, however close it is, that like your rising tide lifts all boats and that's good for me too. And it's really hard when you're in uh, either a city, you know, some of the big scarcity in Boston comes from the affordability here. Like it's just, it's very unaffordable to live here. That's really hard for anybody, let alone creative people who are, you know, don't necessarily have the same level or reliability of income. But also, you know, when there is a, both a perception and in actuality, a a lack of professional opportunities, right? We don't have a super, we don't have a super well built out music industry or film industry or television industry here. So they're they're just is not, um, and we have fewer and fewer independent clubs to play. So like you're left hoping to get a gig at what, like the House of Blues or the you know an opening slot on a, at a five thousand cap club. Like what do you? That's not right. No, the options aren't there. No. Um, and so that ladder isn't there. So I think the the trick is like, I mean, I guess inspiring people to just like have some faith that if we if we drop the scarcity thing and start celebrating each other's successes, that that's going to produce new, good, and interesting things for all of us. Um, but that's a, that's a big ask when you're having a hard time paying your rent. 
Well, it's a huge ask. And I think it's, it's, the, it's the idea of being as enthusiastic about the success of others as you are about your own. And that's, that's a huge ask, especially to your point when you are struggling. And I, that was going to be one of my last questions, but now you've triggered a more existential one of why. Yeah. I'm already in the middle of an existential crisis right now. How did you know? <laughs> you can t- we all tell I you all tell. about it once you turn the recording Same. on. Okay. <laughs> this will be my, oh, shit, you're this is me. my official last question. And then the actual last question yeah, this that is, this I already gave you a heads up about. I start sobbing uncontrollably and you don't know why. <laughs> I'm, I might be right there with you. Uh, <laughs> I, my, my more existential question is around how did we get to this place where art, art in general, never mind music, is so just astronomically devalued? And why is it that you know, I mean, that's that's what sucks. I mean, we've been talking about this for like a decade is this notion of, oh, I'm a poor starving artist and I got to go figure it out. I got to go do this. I got to go do that. When the reality is there's so much inherent entrepreneurship abilities or entrepreneurial abilities in these artists that you've worked with, that I've worked with, and the skill and the grit and the tenacity all exists, but the capital isn't there versus I mean, I've spent the last couple of years in tech just watching people set millions of dollars on fire. And so <laughs> no shade, all power to you. But I'm just curious your your thoughts on where that discrepancy comes from. It's sad and it's true and it's hard, you know, it's really hard to and I guess this is this is my job in a lot of respects as somebody who has to go raise millions of dollars to pay for all of this is to figure out, you know, what what sort of argument, what case making, what what combination of words do you have to say in order to get someone to feel like the kind of like the potential return, which in this case is not going to be a financial return. Um, and even in the case of most artists that are seeking, you know, commercial success is not going to be a very exciting financial return even if they do achieve the level of professional success that they're they're looking for got to sell a lot of t-shirts, you know, to, to pay back all those investors. It's just a, it's a, it's a value system thing and it's a, and it's an availability thing. You know, I think we're at a point where music is everywhere. It's in everything that we consume. It's playing all the time. You've never really had to, you know, you don't have to pay for any of that. And so I think that there was an experience that was afforded in the absence of technology, there was an experience uh, like like the internet, basically. There was an experience that was afforded by going out and buying a physical, you know, recording on a physical format where you got to sit down and you got to make time for it and you got to read the cover art and just like, can you know, consume it in a way that it's just kind of like water now. And And technology is really what has done that. Everything from the music that's in an elevator or the music that's in a restaurant that's now just like streaming off some little widget back there. Like the restaurant doesn't have to think about it. The store doesn't have to think about what radio station they're going to put on or what, you know, what records they're going to play. It's all just kind of technology has enabled. I don't even have to think about what kind of music I like because my fucking phone knows. It'll just play a bunch of random shit that I definitely like, you know? And and so we're at a a place where the technology has made has basically simultaneously stripped out 
the part of it that required, like there, there's zero effort required anymore. I don't have to make any upfront investment. I don't have to invest money. I don't have to invest time. It'll just produce something right off the bat that I'm probably going to like because that's how good the technology is. So it's taken that in different in a different context, but it's like, I spend my entire job just like planning shit. I'm totally subservient to my calendar, right? Like it's, my calendar is there. I'm going to do what's on that calendar. And so the idea that in my personal life, I would like plan a whole fucking weekend somewhere. Like I think about like planning three days of personal activities and I'm just like, nope. <laughs> like my only hope is to go somewhere that's like densely packed enough with interesting shit that I can just kind of like walk around and like stumble into something and be like, oh, this is incredible because I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put that effort in. And what I think about all the time, because it's, you know, including recently has been in part like the destruction of a relationship is to what extent that investment, like, like saying, okay, a week from now, Lindsay, you and I are going to a show. Now we're going to spend the next, it's not like, hey, Lindsay, I noticed there's still tickets are available for this thing tonight. Are you doing anything? Let's go. No, 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 no. It's like a month from now, let's buy these tickets to go see this thing. Now you and I are spending the next month, every time we text with each other, every time we see each other, we're like, oh, I can't wait for that show. We're, it's like there's a mythology to it. It's like developing its own mythology because we put it out there and now we're walking towards it. And, and so that's a very long way of saying, I think that's what we've, we fucked up is that we've made it so readily available so that that there's no way that you're ever going to convince someone to consume music another way. It's too good. This thing is too good at giving me music that I enjoy listening to at almost $0. How are you ever going to talk me out of that? And I used to have to like anticipate that the album was coming out. I used to have to go to a physical store, which was like a part of my, you know, I would like I'd get my coffee and I'd go walking down the boulevard because there was like a main street and some cute little town that I never lived in. I don't know, you know, and, <laughs> and I go into the record store yes. and like John Cusack's in there and they're arguing about which album is the greatest, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> I love it. It was I a whole thing, well, you know, it was a whole experience that we all had to like look forward to and there were sensory elements to it and there was you know, anticipation and this, all that's gone. It's just completely, it's completely flattened. The emotional arc is totally flat and now we don't want to pay for it anymore. And that kind of makes sense. You want to go to a movie? I mean, Netflix is fucking awesome, Lindsay. I don't know if you like, it's cheap. <laughs> Even now when they're like, do you want to pay $20 for this new release? I'm like, fuck yeah, because that's what's going to cost for one ticket. And I'm going to have to like go somewhere. Like, no way. You have to leave the house. No oh, totally. Well, at least you are providing the physical space for that, the next generation. That's the magic of it. That's to figure the whole it out. Thing you know to to leave home to go to work to interact with other human beings to get away from the Netflix machine. Uh, you know there used to be a technological justification for the existence of a recording studio because you didn't have a recording console and a tape machine in your house and you weren't going to have it. Now you've got a recording console and a tape machine in your pocket. Billie Eilish is like winning Grammys, singing into their phone like this, you know, just like, it's like Grammy, 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 Grammy. So like, you don't need all of this shit to make a good recording. Hit records are made in the air between New York and Los Angeles, but you do need this if you want to build meaningful relationships with other human beings. 
And I don't think we're going to be living in the world that any of us want to live in if we're all just doing this all the time. We need to like set the phone down and interact with other human beings. And that's that's one thing we're forcing. We're just forcing it here. You have no choice. There's a human at the front desk. You have to talk to them. There's no way around it. I'm sorry. There's no touch screen where you can order your studio. You're going to have to talk to a person. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) That's it. Before we wrap up, I do need to know, what is the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible advice. Fair. Never ask a lawyer to make a decision because they'll make the worst (laughs) decision. They'll make the most risk averse. It'll be the best decision to keep you from taking any risk and the worst decision with respect to making any progress. Okay. And now lay it on me. The best piece of advice you've ever gotten. Go try a cheesy gordita crunch. <laughs> okay, let me come up with something better Noted. than that. That's good, though. It's good. I mean, you had it. It's delicious. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not it's not exciting, and it's more of a concept than anything that's been, I think, kind of layered on over time. But you know, the 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 plurality of of everything, right? It's not, there's not actually a right answer. Almost always, there's not a right answer. And so, you know, approaching anything that you're doing or any decision you're making from a, a binary stance, you're not going to get there, you know, and you're not going to, and you're not going to understand the implication of the decision you're making, especially on other people, if you take a binary stance. It might be binary for you, but it's not for some people who are downstream of that decision. And I think it's really, it's just super hard to accept because again, we want to organize all this into these neat little quips where it's like, oh yeah, all plans are wrong. Some plans are useful. <laughs> you know, just do this, just invest in real estate in the following ways and you'll be rich. You know, it's just like, it's not. <laughs> right. We don't have space for nuance anymore. No. And, and so I think that that kind of, it's taken years of being told that and shown that over and over and over again by different situations, by different mentors. And they all say some version of it. And the first time you hear it, you're like, okay, boomer, you know, like, no, I can make an app for this. I swear. Um, and it's just not true. It's, it's right. life is messy and mm. decisions are messy and people are messy and it's got to be less about reducing the mess and more about integrating it. How do you take the mess and like just make it a part of a functional system or make it a part of a solution? People always talk about work-life balance. And I'm like, I don't, I, someone told me once, I totally agree with this. It's not about work-life balance. It's about work-life integration because balance implies or basically by definition means that you're always teetering. No, no, no. What you want is those two things to be integrated in a way that you can actually like live every day and not be teetering. Well, thank you for sharing all of that today. I appreciate it. Or thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for coming (laughs) to this zoom room. Whatever it is. (laughs) On it. I love it. (laughs) 
thank you for listening to The Cost of the Status Quo and learning the wisdom, stories, and ideas that will have you feeling inspired and ready to take on the world. If you've enjoyed this, please remember to share, rate, and review. It means the world to me and the team putting it all together. If you're looking for more information, you can find us at costofthestatusquo.com or on Instagram at costofthestatusquo. If you've got any questions or curiosity about me, you can find me at lindsaylearner.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-L-E-R-N-E-R.com or on Instagram at lindsaylearner. Thanks again for listening. Hope you have an awesome day.